Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Nearly 20 years after the start of the war in Afghanistan, the country isn't much closer to achieving the loosely defined humanitarian goals that the United States gave for the invasion. And despite the knowledge of the faulty reasons for our involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq, there isn't a popular anti-war movement in the United States. Instead, the same politicians and media outlets that were complicit in selling those horrible wars are now telling us that, yes, it's very important that we liberate the citizens of oil-rich Venezuela from a dictator. In a talk co-hosted by Harper's Magazine and Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, Roni Brownman, a former president of Doctors Without Borders, examined the evolution of the humanitarian war, talking through the cases of intervention in Libya, Somalia, and Kosovo. I turn it over now to Dr. Brownman. Good evening, and thank you very much for having me here. I'm very honored, a bit intimidated, I must say, but I will try my best to make myself uh, understandable <laughs> this evening. Humanitarian wars, uh, lies, and brainwashing. Uh, it starts with humanitarian wars. What do we mean by what do I mean by humanitarian wars in this book? Well, I mean uh, wars that were termed uh, humanitarian by the media, by the media sometimes in a derogative way, sometimes ironically, but sometimes uh, in a supportive way. So uh, it was all about uh, emergency rescue. And that is the reason why they were called, they were uh, termed uh, uh, humanitarian. Now they are wars. And the question which arises immediately when the, this, uh, this word is spelled out is what, we can, what can we expect from the use of force? And I will start uh, quoting approximately, it is not, it's a way of rephrasing uh, 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 Clausewitz, but I, I, when I read that in the page which was not written by Clausewitz, but someone who was commenting on uh, uh, Clausewitz. Clausewitz <coughs> warns us that, on one hand, no sensible person should start a war without a clear idea of what they hope, what we hope to uh, accomplish, and how we are going to uh, conduct it. And on the other hand, because of frictions, of, because of the fog of war, because of changing means leading to changing uh, uh, objectives, no war ends as originally planned. So this is the fundamental paradox of wars in general, whether they be humanitarian or whether they be more, let's say, uh, classical. And this is something the military know very well about. They're extremely aware of this. But it seems, and this is what we're going to see with my uh, presentation, it seems that the politicians are not fully aware of this, or that they obviously do not remember these uh, extremely profound remarks by uh, Clausewitz. Now, uh, I refer in my book to the notion of uh, just wars, because I think that what used to be called just wars in the past uh, is now uh, uh, nicknamed or is now uh, called uh, humanitarian wars, be, be it only because one of the criteria, and I will come to the various criteria of just war in just a second. But one of the criteria uh, of the just wars uh, is a, a just cause. And uh, uh, rescue, uh, life-saving, uh, protection of civilians against a massacre or uh, against starvation, against a famine, 
is obviously a uh, just cause, is the, the, the just cause of our times. But just wars has the interest, and this is what I uh, had in mind when I, uh, try, when I started working on this notion. Uh, just wars is a notion that aims at making the means of the war consistent, uh, consistent with the ends. In other terms, a laudable end has to be sought for through laudable, laudable uh, means. And this is what uh, Clausewitz uh, recalls us, reminds us of. And uh, this is what the uh, notion of just war bears as well. Uh, we shouldn't take for granted that good intentions equate with a good outcome. So there is a misgiving, there is a reservation about the notion of just cause being pursued through violent means, because we know that violent means may lead to unexpected, unwanted uh, uh, results. And this is, this is what we are going to, to see. But why? Uh, uh, there is another reason why I uh, rely uh, or I use the notion of uh, uh, just war in this book, because I'm not going to develop a lot, but I'm just uh, presenting my book, so it's important for me to inform you about what's inside. The other reason why <coughs> I think the notion of just war is uh, uh, important to consider is that <coughs> the UN based on a report uh, written by the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty. Uh, it's, it was a Canadian-sponsored uh, uh, commission which worked on the prevention of mass atrocities after the war in Bosnia and the Tutsi genocide uh, uh, in Rwanda. So uh, they produced a report in 2001 and this, or 2002, if I recall well, and the conclusions of this report were adopted by the UN, both the General Assembly and the Security uh, uh, Council under the name of uh, Responsibility to uh, Protect, uh, also known as R2P. Uh, in 2005, at the occasion, on, the, on the occasion of the 60th anniversary of the United Nations, uh, the Security Council, well, the United Nations as a whole, came out with this notion, with this statement or emerging norm or new document. The status is not quite clear at least in my mind, but I think in the minds of uh, UN specialists either. <clears throat> but they came out with this, uh, let's say, uh, document called uh, uh, R2P, which was, which adopted the criteria of just wars. Just in a, very uh, briefly, there are three parts in the R2P document, which is a short, uh, it's a, a few-page document. Uh, the first and the, the, the last one, the, the first, first part and the third part, are about preventive diplomacy and, let's say, reconstruction or aid to reconstruction. They're very classical. It's about diplomacy and it's about international aid, those two parts. And there is a very small part, which is in, in the medium, which is about war, which is about the conditions that lend themselves to armed intervention uh, on the decision, of course, of the Security uh, Council. And these uh, situations which call for an armed intervention are crimes of war, crimes, of, uh, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. These are the four accounts on which this uh, notion of R2P is uh, uh, based, uh, drawing on the previous experiences of the 90s, the war in Bosnia, the war, in, uh, uh, the war of genocide in uh, Rwanda being the main events that led, as I said, uh, to, uh, uh, to this. Now the criteria. Uh, 
there are uh, five to six criteria because the, the, the two first one can be can, can be merged uh, into one. There are three, let's say, three legal requirements, which are just cause, legitimate authority, and proportionality in the use of uh, means against uh, violence. So just cause is what I said. Uh, it used to be at the time of Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, which who is the, the, the first one to uh, um, to work on the notion of uh, a just war in a very different, very different context, needless to say. Uh, but just cause uh, at that time was defense of Christianity. Today is protection of civilians, uh, rescue, life-saving operations, uh, uh, etc. Right intention. This is the, the this is the second criterion, which in fact I emerged with the the first one. Right intention means that. The just cause shouldn't be shouldn't be an excuse for a hidden agenda, so it has to be straightforward and uh, a, a clear uh, uh, cause. So this is the first legal requirement. The second one is the legitimate authority. It was the Christian monarch at the time, the Pope. <coughs> it's the Security Council uh, uh, now, and the the third criterion uh, is the notion of sufficient force. That is. Uh, uh, a sense of proportionality, which in practical terms means that the violence which is used to stop violence should not exceed the violence which has to be stopped. Uh, rather uh, uh, logical. But I won't elaborate on this, I won't expand on this uh, uh, criterion. What I'm interested in is uh, what I call the political or ethical political criteria. There are two of them uh, which, in fact, draw on a kind of uh, general wisdom of uh, war, if such a thing can be seen, uh, which is war uh, using force and, and uh, in, in entering uh, in, into war as a last resort, first, and with reasonable chances of success, too. And these two, uh, uh, these two criteria, which can be uh, uh, spelled out in, uh, only in, in, in a few words, are extremely important if you take them uh, uh, seriously. And in practice, we will see that uh, the uh, obligation, the, let's say the moral obligation, whether or not we consider that just war should be the analytical framework, but just political wisdom, uh, uh, political prudence, <coughs> uh, uh, the obligation to ensure that war is indeed uh, the, the last resort has been deliberately ignored in the three conflicts, that is Kosovo, uh, Somalia, Kosovo, and Libya, which I'm going to go over uh, 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 now. As for reasonable chances of uh, success, which is a kind of, it's, it's a calculation process, it needs, it requires a knowledge of the, of the country, of the political forces, of the geography, of the economy of the, of the, of the country, the reasonable chances of uh, success were just impossible to uh, uh, assess when the stated goals of uh, the, the war are vague and general, like uh, democracy, women's liberation, general well-being, and this kind of very nice and vague uh, 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 objectives. We'll have example maybe during the discussion or during my presentation of uh, more limited objectives which uh, uh, paved the way to, uh, let's say, successful 
uh, interventions. Of course, su successful means that the difference between the, 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 the practical outcome and between the stated objective is not so great. That's what I call a success. It's not that general good is achieved, that uh, uh, happiness is uh, pursued by everyone, etc. Certainly not. It's the goal, which is uh, the, the, the outcome, which is not far from the stated uh, goal. Libya was the first war uh, which was started under the auspices of uh, uh, R2P. That is, it was about stopping an impending uh, uh, massacre or impending uh, mass atrocities that were going to to happen, which I will qualify uh, as a, a false flag for a personal war. Uh, Sarkozy, then French president of the Republic, waged this uh, uh, personal war. So let me recall that that was at the time of the so-called Arab Spring, or better called uh, Arab uh, Uprising, or Arab uh, Revolution, which had started at the turn of the, the year uh, 2011. And uh, it unfolded in three key uh, moments, at least the run-up to the, to, to the war. And then uh, I won't elaborate too much on the war itself in the interest of, uh, of time. 15th of February, massive demonstration in Benghazi. Uh, let's say human rights demonstration in favor of a lawyer who had been jailed because he was defending uh, jihadists who were themselves in, uh, in a custody. So this lawyer had been arrested and there was a massive demonstration in solidarity with this uh, 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 person. Uh, of course, there was a crackdown. Few people uh, were uh, killed or uh, injured. And that's the beginning of the, 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 the whole thing. Now, the three key moments are as follows. 22nd February, we see, we hear about air attacks against peaceful demonstrators uh, marching in the streets of uh, uh, Tripoli. And that event, uh, which was not seen by uh, anyone, but which came to our ears through a, a, an eyewitness, uh, first-hand eyewitness who gave a call to Al Jazeera, because he was in Tripoli, and he described uh, live <coughs> on, the, uh, on air, uh, he described what was happening in this uh, roundabout or in this place in uh, Tripoli under, uh, uh, again, uh, air attack, jet fighters, helicopters attacking those uh, demonstrators. It didn't take more than two hours until uh, we heard that both, uh, I mean, Obama, Cameron, and uh, Sarkozy, so three heads of states, uh, parent members of the Security Council, stating that uh, uh, a head of state who sends his, his air force against, against his people is no more legitimate. He cannot rule the country, he must go. So Gaddafi must go was the motto that we heard from the mouth of the three, the three heads of states which I've just mentioned. So this is unheard of. I would like to insist that this is the first time in history that we see such a thing. Second uh, moment, 1st uh, of March, there's an announcement which is made by the then delegate of the Libyan League of Human Rights at a press conference held in Paris, uh, announcing that several mass graves had been found in uh, uh, Libya with 6,000 dead bodies uh, uh, inside, 3,000 in Benghazi, 2,000 in Tripoli, and 1,000 in the rest in, in other places in the, in the country. And then mid-March up to 19th of, uh, of March, 
the threat of an armed column, armed vehicles, headed towards uh, uh, Benghazi, and Benghazi coming uh, under siege and an impending massacre that was threatening to happen uh, in uh, uh, Benghazi. And this is when the, the, the war started with uh, uh, US missiles being shot at uh, the main uh, center of uh, command and control places of the, the, the Libyan uh, uh, army, destruction of airports, uh, uh, etc. And then a first uh, air attack by French uh, Rafale, which uh, claimed to have stopped uh, a tank attack against uh, uh, Benghazi. So three very important moments. What is really important to understand, that was what is in a way scary, at least uh, it gives me goosebumps, I mean, it's, it's, I find it really uh, uh, impressive that none of this has ever happened. There was no air attack against demonstrators in Tripoli. There was no mass graves uh, or no dead bodies uh, dug out of a mass, mass uh, grave. And there was no uh, uh, armed, uh, or, or, sorry, tanks uh, heading uh, towards uh, Benghazi. It was all deception war, and it was, uh, it was all fake uh, in order to justify uh, this war. Now, why did this war take place? What was the, the, what were, what were the motives uh, behind all these uh, lies? We might talk about this in the conversation, but I, I don't have the, enough time to elaborate uh, on this. But let me just insist that the first uh, R2P enterprise, so to speak, was based on pure lies and lies which uh, uh, invaded the, 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 the minds of, of uh, everyone in February and March 2011, being doubtful, being skeptical about what was said uh, about the events in Libya, was a kind of social condemnation, because you were considered a, a friend of Gaddafi, a friend of dictators, <clears throat> and with a few friends, one of them being here, David, David Reif, and a friend, friend in, in, in Paris, we, we created the club of the friends of dictators, because we were <laughs> among the rare opponents uh, to this crazy uh, war, which was uh, evidently, self-evidently, a recipe for chaos. Uh, because, again, uh, installing democracy, uh, the, the, the rule of human rights, uh, etc., in a country uh, just like that, through missiles and, uh, <coughs> and uh, uh, attack helicopters, is just a crazy uh, thing, sufficiently crazy to be seen as crazy, but not by everyone, it seems. And it was uh, our uh, Iraq war. Uh, uh, obviously, what you did, in, you, you, the Americans, not you, <laughs> what you did, let's say, uh, in 2003, we did it in 2011, uh, at our scale, of course, much uh, lower, uh, less, maybe less ambitious, but exactly with the same mindset and the same lies. Our weapons of mass destruction were, were the, the lies I've just uh, spelled out. So if the war in Libya was, let's say, a scam, Somalia is quite another matter. Rest or Hope, which was the nickname of the, the armed intervention in Somalia, which, which started with the landing of uh, uh, GIs on the, so, on the Somali soil uh, in uh, Mogadishu, 8th of December, 92. I would call it a kind of a slate of hands, which is less critical uh, in my... Even a good faith a slate of hands, that is that there, it was a decent objective, 
contrary to what was pursued in Libya, which was certainly not a decent objective. In Somalia, it was a decent objective that was pursued by the by then uh, Secretary General uh, Boutros Boutros Ghali. But through distortion of fact, that was the problem. The facts were apparently not sufficient to uh, be uh, reliable, to be used as a, a bedrock for the construction he wanted to, to do. So they were uh, uh, distorted. There was a famine, there was a war in a context of an average country with uh, several hundreds of thousands of people being internally uh, displaced. And amongst this displaced population, uh, a kind of acute famine uh, erupted in, the sp in spring 1992. Uh, 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 this famine uh, was unnoticed uh, until, uh, some, until the, 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 the summer, and then it hit the, the, the front line. It was on the front page of the main newspaper, the New York Times, Le Monde, uh, and the big t TV uh, channel. So it prompted a, a very uh, important mobilization, a kind of famine, uh, emergency famine rescue, or famine aid, famine relief uh, uh, operation. But Boutros Ghali had a project for the UN. Should recall now that Boutros Ghali was the first Secretary General of the United Nations in the post Cold War era. So it was the end of the automatic veto, and uh, Boutros Ghali was a very ambitious and very, uh, let's say, very uh, smart uh, politician. So that thought that he could be the first Secretary General who could be uh, could use full-fledged means of the, of the United Nations, restore the tribunal, restore the permanent uh, military uh, staff, uh, restore the capacities uh, of, or restore or, or create, in fact, the capacities of uh, uh, the United Nations to impose uh, peace. And what that was, for instance, the agenda for peace, which is still, in a way, uh, existing uh, uh, now. So in, in, for, for that purpose, uh, Boutros Ghali just brushed aside any proposition that could go in the sense of famine, passive, peaceful famine relief. And there were solutions. I myself came here a couple of times to New York and Washington in order to discuss uh, with the local authorities, just as the International Com Committee of the Red Cross uh, did, because they had a huge uh, operation and they were proving just on a daily basis that famine relief was possible. They were distributing food which was really in the mouth of those who needed mostly to one million people a day. So, uh, on, I mean, to one people on a daily basis. So famine relief was really uh, possible. But Boutros Ghali was not interested in this, and he insisted that the food convoys uh, were uh, under constant attacks by armed militias, and that they had to be defended with military uh, means, and that anything else was just uh, loss of time. That was the time when new UN interventionism was uh, uh, created. And just to give you an idea, for those who are not really aware of this period, there were more blue helmets sent to a variety of countries in five years during 1990 and 95 than there were uh, during the first period of existence of the UN, that is from 1945 to uh, 1990. So that says something about the acceleration of uh, the UN uh, uh, interventionism. And that was fitting into the agenda of uh, uh, Boutros Ghali. And Som Somalia had to be, in a way, the testing ground of his new project for uh, the United Nations. So this is the reason why the war in Somalia, that is the armed intervention, 
armed intervention, sorry, which turned into a full-fledged war. Uh, that was a war of first resort. The, the, the authority was perfectly legitimate, the, the, the goals were perfectly uh, acceptable, perfectly uh, decent, but there was, there was a massive lie about the real situation, uh, uh, and uh, the, the, the deployment of armed forces was considered the only uh, and best uh, uh, solution. And then in turn, and I won't elaborate on this, but for details you should, can see uh, uh, in the book, it turned into an increasingly uh, ambitious and I would say hubristic uh, 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 goal, such as state building, nation building, confidence building, and this kind of uh, things. Let me remark in passing that in French, you may have noticed that I'm French, in French, we never used uh, construction de l'État, construction de la confiance, uh, construction de la paix, fabrication de la paix, because instead in French it sounds just ridiculous. We just can't utter those uh, words. So we use the English. So we say French uh, state building, uh, uh, etc. Just to say that uh, in, in my view there are rather hollow uh, notions, but they were sort of used to hide the reality of uh, what was happening in Somalia, which was failure after failure, when the armed intervention be became just another clan, just another group of fighters who were seeding, <coughs> sowing, uh, sorry, uh, chaos uh, 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 in the country. And it all ended up in a ridiculous manhunt with a, a $25,000 bonus placed on the head of General Aidid, one of the warlords. It was really crazy because when, when, when I was in Somalia, for instance, it took me only two days to meet with General Aidid, who was then uh, under this uh, manhunt. So all these antenna and the nice electronic devices were operating, uh, uh, looking for ID, and there was nothing more easy than meeting with ID, provided you had the people trusted you, and you just need a sheet of paper, write your name, and ask for a meeting, and you had the meeting. <laughs> that was the reality uh, in uh, uh, Somalia. But there is a tragic end to this, which is the elimination of a whole generation of young or trustful politicians who got killed uh, in the wake of an armed intervention launched by the special forces who were precisely hunting. I think there were more than 150 people who died at a meeting where all the factions were gathering, a new generation of Somali politicians uh, were uh, on the rise, and they were all taken out. They were all eliminated by mistake. It was not the intention, of course, of the but it was just a, 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 let's say, collateral damage of this uh, uh, operation. And Somalia never recovered, at least, at least up until now, uh, from this uh, episode. So that was, that was uh, Somalia. And what's, what is really sad is that the huge amount of money which was devoted to this military uh, intervention could have been used for uh, famine relief with, in a much more effective way saving many more uh, people without uh, sowing this, the, the, the chaos that, we still, that we're still seeing uh, uh, today. And I'll finish on uh, 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 Kosovo, which is a, a, a different issue. I would call it a, I'm not, not sure it makes sense in English, so if you need more explanations, uh, I will be happy to, to give them. Uh, I would call it a political stunt or strategic stunt uh, with a positive collateral uh, effect. In fact, 
Contrary to the previous uh, conflicts I've just uh, mentioned, I mean, the war in Kosovo, Allied force, to call it by its nickname, Allied force had a clear and achievable objective. That was regime change in favor of a uh, NATO-friendly UCK, also known as uh, Kosovo Liberation Army, KLA. And it was achievable, contrary to what was happening in Libya or in uh, uh, Somalia, it was achievable due to the limited size of the territory and the population and to the fact that there was, whether we like it or not, there was a uh, uh, credible political group which was ready to rule the, the, the country. That was, that was uh, UCK. This, is, this was not existing in the preceding example. There was violence and, and oppression, racist oppression uh, in Kosovo, and something really had to be done. My point here, and I'll give some details in the book, is that it should have been done earlier, uh, when uh, there was still a person like uh, a character like Ibrahim uh, Rugova, who was known as the Gandhi Kosovo, from Kosovo, and he was uh, both a resistant. He had uh, taken a lot of risk. He was uh, a resistant against racism, against the, the let's say the, the Serb nationalism in uh, uh, Kosovo. But he was ready to dis to discuss, to negotiate, to 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 go for a political settlement of the conflict, which was ongoing in uh, uh, Kosovo. But Rugova was mercilessly uh, eliminated of the, of the game. He was never invited to any conference by the, 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 let's say the big guy, the NATO, the European Union, the, the French, the Germans, etc. So there was an option for, for war, which was adopted early on uh, in the mid-90s, at least if my guess is correct. But what is really clear is that in March 99, when there was a, a diplomatic conference held at uh, Rambouillet in the, the outskirts of, uh, of uh, Paris, the conditions that were imposed on, uh, on the Serbs were just, or on the Yugoslav, because they were still Yugoslav at the time, were just unacceptable for any sovereign nation at all. They were just un un unacceptable. Plus the fact that all of a sudden uh, a threat of genocide was brandished by NATO uh, after information that were passed on to them by the German uh, intelligence uh, services under the name of Horseshoe Plan, which was supposed to, to place a grip on, uh, on the Kosovar uh, population and to exterminate them. And figures were uh, around like uh, 500,000 people uh, have already died or at, are at risk of uh, uh, imminent uh, massacre, mass atrocities were all over the place. It was the massacre in Ratchak, uh, in the town of uh, 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 Ratchak, uh, etc. So, that in, by the way, Ratchak served as an excuse to launch the uh, offensive in a context where, anyway, no diplomatic uh, outcome could uh, be produced by the uh, Rambouillet uh, uh, conference. And I catch, catch this opportunity to, to say that the G word, Genocide was uh, once again, uh, because it has a long history of <laughs> being used as a propaganda tool, uh, once again, uh, the notion of genocide was used to make uh, the, this uh, armed, uh, upcoming armed intervention a kind of moral commitment. It was a sort of uh, trump card which was uh, thrown on the table in order to, to, to dispel or to, to dump uh, any kind of uh, uh, critique. And I'm saying that 
as a person who has supported this intervention in Kosovo, though I was very critical of the way it was done and uh, the way I think I didn't have any illusions about the real goals of the war, which was to establish a NATO base uh, in Europe in a context where, with the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, the NATO didn't have any reason of existence uh, anymore. So re restoring the legitimacy of NATO, uh, imposing uh, the idea of its necessity uh, in Europe was a strategic goal for the, for the US and for the, for the NATO uh, members, I guess, at least this is the most uh, reasonable interpretation of this war which uh, uh, I have uh, uh, ever read. In the end, <coughs> we've, we, we, we've talked about 500,000 people who have, would have died. Uh, in the end, casualties have been estimated somewhere between 2,000 and 14,000, depending on who does what, and uh, etc. There was a, a number of teams, including uh, ICT, International, Tribun uh, International Criminal Tribunal, sorry, <laughs> ICTY, that is International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia. There have been forensic teams moving all around, uh, digging out uh, uh, corpses, uh, inspecting wells and houses and cemeteries. And there's been a huge work that has been done. So the, the, the assessment is not clear because we don't know exactly who died from what. And you, of course, you can't do individual uh, uh, forensic examination. It's, it's collective uh, uh, forensic. So it can't be very precise in terms of body count related to uh, the, the war. But it, anyway, it had nothing to do with what was put on the floor, that is uh, 500,000 people who had died and the ongoing uh, uh, genocide. So it's time for me, not maybe not to conclude, but to come to the end of my presentation. Uh, we have here uh, three so-called uh, humanitarian wars, but we have three different motives, uh, three different type of, types of uh, uh, stakeholders. And I'm insisting on this because I want to dispel any uh, suspicion or suggestion of a common conspiracy, uh, someone, uh, uh, hidden power pulling the strings and preparing for chaos, uh, uh, etc. As we've seen, we have different prospects, different objectives, different stakeholders. So it's not exactly, there is a common thread, of course, it is humanitarian rescue, uh, lies, brainwashing, all this is, is in common, but uh, there are a lot of differences, and I think it's very important to to insist on them. Uh, another point which I would like to say before uh, ending, these wars were characterized, probably like always in a war, by a uh, binary, oversimplistic opposition between the goodies and the baddies, between the innocents and the victims, between the, the, the executioners and, uh, and the victims, uh, uh, etc. So it's this black and white uh, picture was all, all the time presented, both in Somalia, in Kosovo, and in uh, uh, Libya. And the, the, the consequence, the immediate consequence of this is, at least in Europe, I don't know how it works uh, here uh, in the United States, but in Europe, and especially uh, in France, for obvious uh, historic uh, reasons, anyone expressing doubts, uh, questions, uh, uh, or critiques uh, about, for instance, the war uh, in Libya was called a Munichois, uh, referring to the Munich uh, uh, Accord. And of course, when someone calls you a Munichois, it means that he is in the shoes of Churchill and you're in the shoes of uh, Chamberlain or Daladier, but uh, of course not the other way around. But the media pundits, the, the, 
the, the editorial list. I mean, a number of people used this term at the time of the war to dismiss, to, to, to sow doubt on the people who, the rare people who were expressing uh, critique. So moral blackmailing is the uh, rule in this kind of uh, situation. So this is the reason why it's important to have it to bear in mind that facts are facts, that what is possible is not necessarily plausible, and what is plausible is not necessarily factual. And uh, this continuum between the three, the possible, the plausible, and the factual, was the problem, uh, in at least as, as far as the media uh, are uh, concerned, at the time of the, the war in Libya, but the war as well, the war in uh, uh, Somalia. And let me finish by saying that I'm not suggesting that the, in, the, in the absence of armed intervention, everything would have gone smoothly uh, in those uh, countries. I'm fully aware that the situation could have deteriorated in Libya as well as in uh, Somalia. But the difference is that we, I mean, we, the, the main stakeholder, the, the, the people who got uh, involved in those conflicts or even triggered, I mean, uh, started those uh, conflicts, took a very heavy responsibility that could not be assumed. And this is why it is totally irresponsible and those people should be judged, not in a court, I'm not uh, obsessed by it, but at least, but at least in public. And what, what I see uh, is that it's completely uh, forgotten. And this is the reason why I wrote uh, this uh, book. Now, I still have a, a real last word, which is about my last chapter. Uh, for those who are interested, I would like to let them know that uh, in this book, I try to adopt a kind of hindsight uh, critique, uh, uh, take some distance from the international humanitarian law, and uh, try to recall that promoting international humanitarian law is a way of promoting war and not, prom not necessarily promoting human rights. Uh, and we'll stop on this. I thank you for your attention, and I'm ready to answer any kind of critique or objections or, or listen to your comments. Thank you very much. I can't even begin to think of how many questions I have <laughs> and how easily it would be to abuse my position as chair. But let me invite Rick MacArthur to comment by a few words, and then I will say a couple of words, and we'll open it for conversation. Okay, I'll just I'll try to be brief. I, I'm a very self-interested participant in this. It's As a journalist, this has nothing to do with my work as a publisher, uh, my specialty is propaganda in wartime, and I was, uh, I, I pretend I never see any, I never look at anything on the internet, but in fact, I saw him first on Mediapart, you know what that is, anybody? It's a French website talking about this book, and I said, this sounds very interesting, sounds right up my alley, and I, I read it, and uh, all of the things that I had learned, or I have learned as a propaganda investigator, turned out to be worse than I thought, because he knows more about it than I do. And uh, I was introduced to this through the baby incubator atrocity uh, that never happened in Iraq. Does anybody know the story? Anyway, uh, terrible thing that happened that uh, was cooked up by the Kuwaitis and Hill and Knowlton in 1991 to help, and George Bush picked up on it in order to justify uh, uh, the intervention that eventually evicted Saddam from, from Kuwait. Um, and this is a thing that raised my consciousness about it. Uh, but I didn't really understand the implications of the 
movement towards uh, international intervention under UN auspices until I interviewed Helmut Schmidt uh, in 2002 or 2003. It was before the invasion, the second Gulf War, the second invasion of, of Iraq, where he said to me that, and it had not occurred to me up to that point, that uh, Kosovo was the precedent for the, for the, the, the uh, legal justification under international law uh, for the invasion of Iraq, that preemptive war in Iraq grows directly out of preemptive war to stop a genocide in Kosovo. Uh, because under international law, unless you've been attacked uh, by, if Yugoslavia had attacked the United States, had, had uh, uh, fired a missile into an American embassy, uh, there would have been a justification, or, or any other embassy, but they hadn't done that. It was a, up to that point, was just a, a civil war. The, 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 the Serbs didn't even consider it a civil war. Uh, with the Albanians. Uh, and this, again, shocked me because I hadn't really considered the international law implications of it. Uh, so the question I have, uh, uh, which I hope he's going to talk about a little bit later, is whose responsibility is this? Um, because the journalists, again and again and again, fall down on the job. Are there any uh, journalism school students here? Not a single one. Mm -hmm. You see, this is the thing that really distresses this me. Is human it? geography. <laughs> it's on the other side of campus. Right, but but that the, the journalists don't do their job, uh, and if they don't do their job, we're in a we're in a terrible fix because you can't ask. I don't think you can ask Médecins Sans Frontières to do this. I can't. You can't ask a doctor on the ground to to refute. Uh, an accusation of genocide in the middle of a, a conflict zone, that's not their role. Um, and uh, there's one point here which I want to quote where Roney says, uh, he says, Al Jazeera played a uh, major role in the war supporting the, the rebellion. You're talking about Libya. It obviously didn't take that war to convince me of the importance of propaganda, but I'm still amazed and sometimes saddened by the passivity, passivity even submissiveness with which people allowed themselves to be brainwashed by the political and media consensus that was being created at that point in time. And um, we see this play out again and again and again. And uh, I really do intend to make fun of myself here when I say that after I broke the, the baby incubator story in the New York Times, I was feeling pretty, uh, pretty good about myself. I thought I'd really done a great job. And uh, I went to a, a kind of a colloquy at NYU, and a guy pipe, pipes up in the back of the uh, audience and says, you know, it's all well and good that you, you bust propaganda and expose the lies and so on and so forth, but aren't you actually contributing to the, to the false reassurance that people feel that these things are self-correcting, that democracy and journalism is self-correcting? This is my philosophical question. When manifestly, particularly in the case of Libya, which is absolutely incredible, it's even worse, in a sense, uh, in terms of factual matter, in terms of fact, than, than Iraq. Uh, after Libya, how can anybody say that uh, the system, such as it is, is self-correcting? And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. But, now, yeah. 
So <clears throat> what we have here, you gave a description of three cases. And the details of the description and the narrative can be told in different ways. But I want to ask you something that goes more to the principle. Politicians obviously always fight the last war. So the failure in Somalia led to inaction in Rwanda. The success in Kosovo led to Iraq, to the notion that you can do. So I want to ask you, first of all, do you believe that there is responsibility to intervene on wherever the situation is in crisis? And the fact that uh, Rwanda was no intervention, Syria there was no intervention, and so what we can expect is, is there any global in responsibility to come to the um, aid of uh, in crisis where lives are being uh, eliminated in, um, massively? So we can always find propaganda. That's not a, that's not a problem. I mean, yes, we no, no. We are in the midst of um, the worst propaganda since Nazis, I would assume, or so, since the Soviets. Whether there was collusion, whether there was obstruction, I think the Post has uh, today a headline. The, the Washington Post has a headline today that Trump has lied ten thousand times since he got into office. So. I think that question of propaganda is all over in politics. But the question is that I want to present, and there are many others, but I won't do it, is do you think that there is some threshold of violence and unprotected and, uh, violence against civilians that called on aid and protection and intervention from the rest of the world? Now, of course, the notion of threshold uh, is important because if you have uh, 15%, 15 persons uh, who are uh, killed or in a bad position, and if you have uh, a million people who are in a bad position, it doesn't <coughs> come down to the same. I, I agree. So there is a uh, uh, quantities matter, numbers uh, matter. Now, this no notion of threshold has to be combined and this is the reason why I think that the analytical framework that is provided by the, 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 the concept of just wars is useful, though I don't think that such a thing as a just war exists, but I think that the, the, the concept of just war is useful in, for us in, in, in order to explore the, the, <coughs> the, 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 the consequences, to think about uh, the, the, the war in, uh, under uh, diverse uh, points of view. That is first what, has, what should be achieved and then is it achievable? And then comes my, let's say, my medical background, my uh, medical culture, uh, which tells me that uh, sometimes the remedy is worse than the disease. Obviously. <clears throat> and this has to be taken into account. This is what uh, uh, Clausewitz says <clears throat> in the quote which I uh, just uh, 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 
mentioned that this is what happened in Libya, in Kosovo, in uh, not in Kosovo, sorry, <coughs> in, in, Somalia. In, in Somalia, in Iraq, uh, 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 etc. So, provided that you think that you've good prospects of making the situation after the war better than it was before, after the war, that is, after the armed intervention, yes, I think that intervention has to be an intervention has to be uh, uh, considered now. Uh, I'm not a military, but I'm interested in I'm interested in, in strategy, and, and, and I'm an observer, uh, sometimes first-hand uh, witness, but sometimes just an observer uh, of uh, armed intervention of wars. Uh, um, when would um, you think a justified intervention could? Do you have a, you said you supported yeah. the the Kosovo intervention? Yeah, I supported, and uh, I think I still. In a way, supported though I consider UCK as a fascistoid mafia -like right. group, so it's uh, I'm <laughs> taking this with kid gloves. Uh, I'm not adhering with what to, to, to what they say, but still there is certain stability now. The protection of the Serbs in Kosovo is the uh, uh, issue because if there has been an ethnic cleansing, it's, uh, it's against the, the Serbs in Kosovo who's been, who've been marginalized. So there, there, there should be something to help the, Kos the, 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 Kosovo, the Serb Kosovars uh, to, to, to stay there. Now, uh, there's been Sierra Leone in 2002, where the, the Kana government was saved by the UK, by the British uh, intervention. It was a very uh, daring, very uh, quick uh, intervention. It was a limited territory. It was a limited objective just, just to defeat one militia in order to shield the government from being toppled by this uh, militia. It was successful, and the, the Sierra Leoneans are happy uh, about it. And then the Brits pulled out as soon yes. as they, So that was Timor in 99, uh, led by the Australian uh, uh, army, was a successful intervention, though authorized in a way by the Indonesians. So they made an effort as well. But still, still there was a massive threat of widespread violences in, uh, in East Timor. And that was averted thanks to the Australian uh, army, which, by the way, had always taken sides along with the Indonesian government had recognized the annexation of uh, Timor, etc., which showed that things can move, things can change uh, 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 over time. And more limited intervention in Central African Republic, uh, in Eastern Congo, in Ivory Coast, in Mali, uh, by the French army, which were, uh, in a way, successful. But, but there are things I think what's interesting also in, the, in, in your question is to consider a more open situation, like for instance, Afghanistan. Afghanistan, the, the intervention in Afghanistan in, in late 2001, after the, 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 the terrorist attacks uh, here, were fully justified, and I haven't heard anywhere, anyone putting that into question, except the conspirationists who think that the CIA, etc. but let's forget them, not interesting. But this, uh, it was perfectly okay. Uh, a kind of international police operation aimed at dismantling uh, Al-Qaeda bases uh, in Afghanistan or at the border of uh, Pakistan were perfectly understood by everyone who was of good faith. Now the rest, why did the, the, the NATO, why did, why did we have NATO and ISAF and, and the French and the German and the, 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 why this, this, the Spanish and, the, and the, the, the half of the world is, is in Afghanistan, has become an, an occupation force, has claimed the lives of thousands and thousands of Afghans, and including 
uh, foreign soldiers <laughs> operating yeah. in Afghanistan. It's a kind of war for civilization uh, aimed at, I don't know, unveiling the women. No, it must be crazy in Afghanistan yeah, no, if you I want to do so in the, in, in, in the rural areas of, of uh, Afghanistan. So you can, can have a fully justified intervention which, which turns uh, into a kind of colonial expedition uh, without even being aware uh, of it. The night's longest war ever waged by the US yeah. and nobody knows when uh, you're going to, uh, you are going to, the US are going to uh, pull out. Right. So there are in-between situations which are interesting to consider as well. Yeah, I, I think that the abuse of the term humanitarian intervention is even worse than the execution of it because that Iraq was not a humanitarian intervention from any different no. perspective. Sure. But by calling it humanitarian, that Who called the, it humanitarian? The, the U.S. Well, it was Well, I mean, it's it's to it's to preempt an atomic bomb uh, attack. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's that's the, the justification. The people, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, Saddam is on the verge of uh, building or, or or completing an atomic bomb that he could use against Israel or against uh, uh, Iran or or whatever, and, and that ultimately is the justification that was used. It was rejected by the Security Council, but. But the failure, did it anyway. the failure there obviously uh, forestall any intervention in, in uh, Syria. Uh, how can you say that? I mean, everyone is intervening in Syria. I mean, Syria is an open field for, uh, for foreign interventions. You have at least 20 different nationalities operating in Syria, including Americans, including French, including Brits, including uh, 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 Saudis, including Kuwaitis, including Emiratis, Turks, uh, Iranians, etc. So how can we say that there is no intervention? There is no f we deliberate Western intervention. Okay, but intervention is everywhere in Syria. Yeah. And this is the problem in Syria. More than the civil war in Syria, it's, it's, uh, which would have come to an end without the foreign intervention, it's the, it's the massive foreign intervention which caused uh, this chaos in Syria. I really want to answer that question, but uh, I want to open it to the audience because I, I want to see if there are questions, and then we can continue this conversation. I don't see tons of hands, so <laughs> we may read. Yes? Um, I just want a few details. What is the average size of uh, doctors without borders? I mean, do they... Secondly, do they apply voluntarily to be members of Doctors Without Borders? Who, Finally, uh, are there any women members? Any women? No, certainly not. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> There's a majority of women. A general balance uh, in uh, Médecins Sans Frontières is tilted in the, in the female <laughs> direction. So, uh, yes, of course. Well, you just need to be either a member of a political profession, doctor, nurse, surgeon, pediatrician, nutritionist, etc., or have a certain skills in administration or logistics, and you just volunteer and show up and see if there is, if there is a vacant position for, for you. It's open to, to anyone, yes? Yes. So, uh, Roddy, you talked about, you know, potentially limited uh, military intervention could be possible or supported. And obviously not this broad, uh, without uh, a broad agenda. 
but what would be the uh, uh, kind of a entity that would measure that and authorize that in your view that limited military intervention that potentially could be effective well technically speaking those i mean the the the, the, the primary the, the main stakeholders that is those who are going to send troops uh, there and need to see how achievable is the goal that was uh, assigned to them or the goal they assigned themselves to, to them. And ultimately, of course, the Security Council, because it's better that, uh, the, let's say, the legal authority, I'm not saying the legitimate authority, because this is another issue, but at least the legal authority uh, of, the, of the world uh, uh, authorizes, gives permission to intervene or, or uh, triggers uh, uh, an intervention. But, I mean, the criteria are rather uh, simple. Let, let's look at what's, what was successful. Uh, let's look at what failed. And it, it's, it's just immediate. You can see it at first sight. Sure. Well, I guess that's so you talk about Security Council. We know that most of the you know, entities within the Security Council, they have their own foreign policy, and they're going to follow their own agenda. And we have a lot of examples that Security Council is not really necessarily the most trusted for the good of the people. So that's kind of like, I think, is out of the picture. And then at the local level also, I guess the situations in most of the scenarios, such as Sierra Leone and Mali, there is, there is no central uh, coherency, uh, either for the military or government, and certainly not also for the countries around them. So it, it sounds like, you know, in, you know, in theory, there could be some potentially legitimate military intervention. But in the reality that we see, I don't think there is any mechanism that could be trusted in any way. So, no, I, I don't see any mechanism that would be that could be trust, yeah. trusted blindly. Obviously, you know, this is, doesn't belong to the real world. It's uh, maybe in a fantasy, but not uh, not uh, not here. Now, you know, in, in Mali, France is in the same position as the well, the, let's say the U.S.-led coalition. Uh, in uh, uh, Afghanistan with a uh, legitimate and probably necessary intervention, armed intervention to start with, and then something which is just impossible to grasp, impossible to, to synthesize. We don't know exactly what it's all about. So we don't know what, what the, the, the international forces in Afghanistan are pursuing, what, it, what is their goal. It's just impossible to understand. So, except, no, no, impossible to understand. <clears throat> and this, the same goes for uh, Mali and West uh, Africa for the French troops. I mean, it was uh, by many uh, self-evident that uh, Bamako, the capital city of uh, Mali, had to be protected, protected against an, a, a jihadist attack which was about to happen uh, only in, in, a, in a few days or so on the call. This is the only, by the way, uh, this is the second um, um, legitimate reason for engaging in the war. That is, first, self-defense. Second, respond to an appeal by uh, a government or by, which is uh, under attack. And that was the case. Uh, Ibeka, the, Mali, the, the president of Mali, called uh, the French president and asked for his uh, help. That was done. And uh, I must say that I approved this uh, operation as well, uh, because Bamako was really under threat. And you know, we, the, the first 
Malian city in the world is in Paris, it's in the immediate outskirts of Paris. It's in Montreuil. We have 120,000 of them uh, in, uh, in, the, in, in this area. They were all very happy. I mean, they were celebrating the, the armed intervention in Bamako because they were scared to... They were scared. Uh, now, once Bamako is protected, what do you do? I mean, the French troops were, said, were cheerfully welcomed. Bravo, again, you're welcome, etc. Now, they're stoned. And this is what happened to armies, which uh, foreign armies, which stay long, <laughs> too long in a foreign country. They, not they, to stay too long. They're liberators, and then they become occupiers. And now yeah. we are an occupation force. And fight against terrorism is just like imposing democracy with missiles. It doesn't make sense. It's just words. It's uh, uh, hollow words. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how? What are your perspectives on a humanitarian or military intervention in Venezuela? After like talking about all these propaganda things. Well, that would be the last thing to do. But like in many situations, my view here is that we don't have a goodie and a baddie in Venezuela. We have two baddies in a way. And uh, so anyway, we're not going to sort things out with a foreign uh, force and, and, and um, putting a pressure with the threat of a foreign force only serves to radicalize uh, positions. So armed intervention are not a problem per se when they unfold, when they are uh, implemented. They're, always, they're already a problem when they are brandished as a kind of uh, threat or uh, upcoming uh, uh, event. So evidently, I'm completely against any kind of armed intervention in Venezuela. Yes. You use the term false flag or fake news. Tiananmen Square in 89, uh, the so-called massacre is sometimes viewed as a false flag uh, the CIA using some of their operatives where, where, in, in, in China. In China, China, China. Yeah. Okay. Do you have an opinion about that? That there was no real massacre that the military, Chinese military, backed off after midnight. Most of the students were allowed to leave. Uh, no, I don't think this is propaganda. I think uh, there were more people who died in Tiananmen Square well, than... Major massacre that is presented is now disbelieved by many people. And it was endowment for democracy that uh, non-profit NGO that is a CIA operation they organized. Well, this exists in a way, but um, I, I can't answer your question precisely okay. on um, on Tiananmen Square. I don't have enough information right. on this. Sorry. Well, we might want to remember that before the term humanitarian intervention came into, there were three major cases that were very successful. We never used the term intervention, uh, humanitarian. There was the Tanzania in uh, Uganda against Idi Amin. There was Bangladesh, the Indian intervention in Bangladesh. And then there was Vietnam in Cambodia. Yeah. All of these interventions were military interventions of neighbors under the justification of security, and they led to major success of uh, stopping of the, a lot of violence. Uh, but none of, those was sure. none of those were approved by the UN. 
No, certainly not. But I, I, I tend to agree with you uh, regarding uh, the Indian intervention in eastern Pakistan, where there was something like a genocide ongoing there. I mean, hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people being massacred by the Pakistani uh, uh, army after the, 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 the typhoon that had occurred and the uprising because of lack of aid that was sent by uh, Western Pakistan, etc. So let's not go into the details, but uh, uh, it's really striking that uh, Indira Gandhi, then Prime Minister of India, spelled out the terms that were going to be used later on for the justification and not necessarily from a propaganda point of view, yeah. but that, for instance, speaking of uh, mass atrocities, atrocities uh, maybe tantamount to what happened to the Jews under the Third Reich, she, this is the word she was uh, 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 using, so the notion of genocide was, uh, was there, and rightly so, by the way, because I think that it's a serious candidate for the label of genocide, I mean, what happened, uh, I mean, the, the Eastern, Eastern uh, Pakistanis. <coughs> and anyway, what she did, I mean, topple the authorities of uh, Dhaka Pakistan. and then uh, install Mujibur uh, Rahman, if I recall well, uh, in Dhaka, that was perfectly right. And she, she, she is the, the, the founding mother, so to speak, oh. of the right to interfere in modern times. I, I fully agree. But let's accept that India is also an imperial power, uh, at least at its regional scale, and that is a kind of classical feature of uh, imperial power. But still, I, I agree with that. They, they bettered, they improved the situation. The Indian soldiers improved the, situations, uh, the situation in eastern Pakistan, which became then uh, Bangladesh. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the same thing about what was what happened in Uganda? I was in Uganda at the time. I was in Uganda in the early uh, 80s for uh, uh, MSF. And what I saw was famine, chaos, violence all over the place. I was shot at several times by the Tanzanian soldiers, who were not really soldiers. They were former convicts dressed in uniforms and sent to uh, impose law and order their own way. That is to loot the country, to serve themselves. They kill all the, all the, the what's it called? The, the, the game, uh, you know, they, yeah. they destroyed. Uh, their destruction were endless. It was, it was absolutely horrible. Uganda was one of the most dangerous places at the time of the presence of Tanzanian uh, soldier. So I wouldn't follow you on this. Of course, Uganda has changed over time, and the situation now is totally uh, different. I'm not saying that. Uh, yeah, no, no, right. At the time, but in the early 80s, I mean, Uganda was hell. And, and uh, for the Ugandans, I mean, uh, basically so. Uh, and uh, in uh, Cambodia, uh, okay, a Khmer Rouge faction fought against another Khmer Rouge faction. So they, uh, they toppled the, uh, one of the factions and it was replaced by Hun Sen is a Khmer Rouge. He's not, uh, and then Xamarin was a Khmer Rouge. And the, the, the whole uh, leadership was Khmer. Uh, so the murderers of yesterday became the liberators of, uh, of today. And now, during the first years of the Vietnamese presence, because Hun Sen was brought by the Vietnamese army, yes. um, tens of thousands of people died from starvation, forced labor, uh, in the construction of a wall, of defense wall uh, along the, the, the Thai border. So it was really hell in, uh, in Cambodia uh, again. Then things 
slightly improved, though Hun Sen uh, is still, still in place. Uh, yeah. 40, 40 years, <coughs> and and uh, I mean the, the 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 country is just sold to anyone who wants to to buy it. Cambodia is a pure disaster. It's sent to the Chinese, to the Thais, to the Vietnamese, and the the, the Cambodia doesn't have their their say. Uh, it is a, it's a it's a corrupt dictatorship, uh, which has to account for tens of thousands of people who died under its uh, uh, authority. So you might say, yes, but it's less worse. Less, less than, than a million yeah. before. I agree on this. Okay. I, I was going to say, do, we have to, do, you want to talk, do you want to talk about uh, Rwanda? Yeah, yeah, Because sure. when he says that, uh, no, I forgot what you, exactly how you put it. Mm. Uh, um, um, but in, in the case where the, 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 um, oh, the liberator, be, I'm sorry, the, the, the killer becomes a liberator, <laughs> Some people might say this about Kagame. Oh, sure. So certainly, this Kagame, is the sujet qui fâche yeah. the most. So let's <laughs> let's talk about it. Well, Kagame presents himself as the the voice of the survivors, uh, but he was never threatened by uh, uh, the the uh, genocide, and he didn't stop the genocide. He won the war, and he won the war at the cost of thousands of people who got were killed because he decided not to go to uh, save them. And uh, Kagame was one of the worst, uh, let's say, serial killers in Africa, along with Omar al-Bashir, who has now been toppled. And this is very good news. And what's happening in Sudan is very good news. It's a real although, although, just like you said before, it's the military that takes over. It's the clipping of the top, but it's the same system that stays in place. We'll see. You, you might hope, <laughs> I hope the future uh, will, will say something different, but you, you're right. For the time being, the military are the only stable force, and they're taking over, but they're prepared to share power with the civilian, etc. Et but let's not anticipate on, on this. The <clears throat> my, my point was about Omar al-Bashir, who was yeah. one of amongst the, the rare uh, uh, mass criminals uh, in, in in Africa, because okay, Africa is not a land of is not a continent of democracy. We all know that, but it's not the continent of mass massacres either. It's rather Asia uh, uh, and Europe, of course, who, which are continents of mass uh, massacres. So mass massacres rather the exception than the rule, uh, even under uh, dictatorships. But uh, uh, in in Rwanda, a dictator and a mass killer succeeded to another dictator and a mass killer. And this is, this is Kagame, who is responsible for the death of, of at least 300,000 people, both in, in Rwanda and in Congo and in northern Burundi to a lesser yeah. extent. <coughs> so, uh, uh, and this guy is celebrated as, uh, as a democrat, as the one who put a term to a genocide, as a, as a human rights hero. This is this is terrible. This is uh, this is an inversion of uh, this is deceitful. This is uh, propaganda, uh, and it has to be fixed. Uh, 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 at least uh, Kagame is a corrupt dictator. That's Absolutely. I I think we can continue that for a long time, but we had a schedule, so I want to thank you very much. Oh, we're done now. We're done now. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. 
The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.